Anybody know the name of the song that they're playing? Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. Written by Andre Crouch back in the 1960s. One of my favorite songs from my early days as a, as a believer. I, I want you to meet somebody this morning. You've already uh, seen the youth group from First Baptist Ada. I had the privilege of pastoring at First Ada for three years before I became pastor here. And uh, 1987 to 89, most of these folks were not born then, but Kyle uh, Mott is the uh, youth pastor there. And Brad Graves is uh, Brad Graves is their pastor who's a friend of mine. And after we had the storms, just days after we had the storms, he called and said, man, we want to bring a team of our kids uh, to come work and help in Albany. That is a long drive from Ada, Oklahoma. Short. You cannot get it. This is this far <laughs> on the map, but it's uh, but you cannot get there from here. No, uh, not hardly. But I want you to stand right there because we got a microphone for you. But Kyle, I, want, I just want you to share because let me. Uh, we start a new series today on the Jesus Generation, and uh, what has happened in your youth group and at First Data in just the last few weeks has been nothing short of a mighty move of God. So I want you to share because revival spreads on the wings of testimony. Amen. And I want you to share about what God's doing. And then some of their students are going to share tonight in the service as well. Uh, first off, man, uh, thank you guys so much for allowing us to be here and be a part of this week. And Michael, thank you for giving me an opportunity just to share with you guys a, a few things this morning. And uh, first of all, again, my name is Kyle. I'm the student pastor at Ada First. Been there for three years and I mean, I've never seen God move in the way that he's moved over the last couple of weeks. And so, in fact, as I was talking on the phone with, uh, with Ken and with Garrett and with uh, Michael one day, we were on a little phone conference. It was fun. And uh, they said, <laughs> I think you said it this way. You said, what was the formula that you guys used to see God move? And, uh, and I said, well, that was easy. It was really easy. And in fact, uh, the formula began with this, prayer and fasting. And in fact, we'll never see a move of God without those two things. And in fact, if you've, never, uh, if you've never really fasted before, there's always a purpose behind fasting. You're always looking for God to do and speak something very specific into your life. And so that was, that was a good training moment for our students, just teaching them what fasting really was. And so, man, it began with this. It was the first time we've ever done something like this in our church. But in January, we did a, a week-long thing called Cleanse the Temple, where as a church, we signed up. Um, 24 hours a day, there was somebody at the church in our worship center um, reading the Bible, praying. We have five stations set up. It was really neat. The first station was a couple of sandboxes, so we, we, we had fun time for the kids, you know. And uh, but they, what we would do is we would write our sins and, uh, and confess those in the sand, and then we had a comb to, to brush them through and just show that, that Jesus has, has forgiven us those sins and covered that sin. So we began just by humbling ourselves in confession. And then, uh, then you would move on to the next one, and it was the cross. And there we would, we would write our name, and we put our name on the cross. Just remember, that's where Christ holds us 
those of us who, who know him. And then the next station, we, uh, we would do communion. And, uh, and so that was a great just intimate time there. And then the next station was we actually, we, we read the Bible. And so not the whole Bible myself, um, but through, through, uh, through this week, we read all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I mean, we went all the way through. And, um, and so, in fact, one night, the, the students, we did it together, which was kind of chaotic, bringing 100 kids into this room uh, to do this. And, uh, but it was an amazing experience for them, and we read about four extra chapters, so the, the next person was really happy with us. They didn't have as much to read. And, uh, but the last station was, ended up being my favorite, and it was really uh, unique because at the beginning, I was like, hey, this is going to be great, but I didn't realize how amazing that moment was going to be, but there was a journal. It was a prayer journal that, that we would each write our individual prayers of, of what we wanted to see God do in our church. And so it was really, really amazing. By the time you got there, you'd humbled yourself, you'd confessed your sin, and so there was no selfish ambition in your prayer. It wasn't, hey, I want different music. It wasn't, uh, the youth pastor needs to cut his hair. You know, it wasn't that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, in fact, it was, it was really us just pouring our heart out and saying, God, we want to see him move in a way that we've never seen before. And so that's what happened. And then, and then after that, it didn't stop there. That was in January. And then we moved into a 21-day fast where, uh, where we just, we saw God's face. And so through that 21 days, a lot of us gave up several different things. Some, of, some people abstained from food. Some people abstained from things like Netflix and instead devoted their time to scripture and prayer. And, uh, and through that, the next thing that led up to was uh, the students. Each Monday, we met at the gym at 747. I'm a Creedence Clearwater Revival fan, so that's where that came from. Um, but <clears throat> at 747, we would meet up there. And, uh, and sometimes there's a handful of us, sometimes it was, it was bigger than that, but they were praying for their friends because we had a, before revival happened, we had an event uh, kind of similar to what you guys just did with your D now. And uh, we, we kind of, we moved ours and we called it winter camp and people were like, what's winter camp? And we were like, don't, we don't know, just show up, okay? And, uh, but we prayed and invited our friends and in fact, uh, as we began to meet together and pray, we began to just see, man, God just began to stir something in our students before, before we even got to camp and before revival even, even happened the next week. And, uh, but we have, we have this thing that I like to call, we, we like to practice purpose. And so each, each time that we have an event, each time that we have something to do, we want to we practice purpose of what that event is and we, and we want to see God move, right? And so... In that practice and in that purpose, we want to be sure that every single time that God receives all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. It's not about how many people we get there. It's not about um, how great my hair looks that day. It's about seeing God come and move. And so everything that we do, we want to practice purpose. And again, we want him to receive all the, the, all, all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. And so we, we had winter camp. It was a weekend camp, basically, that we just crammed into. It was a, it was a camp that we crammed into a weekend. And... Uh, during February, it's the worst time ever to try and do something. There's, there's a, you got track, you got basketball. In fact, we had, our, our camp was the weekend of basketball districts, and we had two great teams, our guys and our girls team. And, uh, but we had 130-something students there that weekend, which was pretty phenomenal because we're in a town that's like a, not even a quarter of the size of you guys. And uh, we had students that did some amazing things, and the prayer and the fasting led up to this. But we had students that, said, that went to their basketball coach and said, Coach, I'm not going to be there this weekend. I'm going to go honor God, and I'm going to this camp. We had students that, uh, that skipped other things. And in fact, a lot of the students that are here right now this week 
are skipping things and responsibilities that they have, either for drama team, that they, they have plays coming up, or different sports and things that they're involved in. And so it all began with these students making sacrifices. Um, I know a lot of you begin to see as, as time has changed, um, used to you didn't have to worry about events being on, or games being on Wednesdays and Sundays, and now it's like every weekend and every Wednesday there's something going on. And so what we began to see is our culture began to shape how the church functioned. And so we began to talk and, and pray through that and say, man, this is not the way it should be. In fact, man, God should be shaping us. And in fact, through that, we should be shaping the culture around us. And if we begin to make these commitments now and say, well, I'm not going to be there. The more of us that begin to do that, the less likely they're going to continue doing these types of things. And so a lot of these kids began that. They prayed. They began to meet in the hallways at the school. I would get text messages of pictures, and there would be 30 students at each school that were circled up and praying together. Um, we, had, we had some amazing secretaries at the schools that would uh, announce over the intercom, um, hey, there's a prayer meeting going on at this time. You, get, you guys should be at Ada First Baptist tonight for this. And that just doesn't happen, okay? Um, not only that, but uh, our speaker for our camp and for the revival, we were able to get him into all the major schools in our area before, to do assemblies before all this happened. And so our kids got familiar with him. And in fact, at one of the schools, this was amazing. At one of the schools, the, the principal, he dismissed a junior high and the freshmen and the, and the sophomores. And he asked the, junior, uh, the juniors and the seniors to stay behind. And he said, I want you guys to ask, the, the gentleman that came and spoke for us, his name is Kim Freeman. And uh, he said, I want you guys to be able to ask Ken anything that you want to. And Ken said, I can answer however I want to. And he said, you're, you're, you're able to say and do whatever you want to right now. And so he had the opportunity at the school to share the gospel with the students. And, um, and so I, I don't think you guys even really understand how huge of a deal that is. And that doesn't happen without prayer and fasting. And so I just want to share this scripture with you guys and wrap up a couple of things. But our formula consists of this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, you guys should know this. If you don't, look it up later, okay? Highlight it. Make it your, your daily verse today. But it says, if my people who call themselves by my name will humble themselves and pray that I will hear them from heaven and I will heal their land. And, and that's exactly, forgive them of their sin and heal their land. And that's exactly what Ada needed. I, you guys probably aren't familiar with Ada except for Michael was there for a long time. So you've probably heard some stories from him. But it was a sick land. It was a sick place. There's just been several things that have happened in the last couple of years in, 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 in different churches that have really just ripped the community apart. And so not only was it just destroyed by sin, but, uh, but our land needed a physical healing. And, and the, the people needed a physical um, or spiritual healing as well. And so we saw God do that through our prayer and our fasting. And through that, we've seen just the students continue to be committed. They're leading Bible studies in their schools that they've never done before. In fact, uh, I'm having to provide a lot more pizza and stuff than I, than I ever have before. So we may have to adjust my budgets later on this, this year. And, um, but isn't that an amazing problem to have to, to where you get to the point you're like, okay, guys, um, God's moving, so we need you to bless us a little bit more financially. Like, who doesn't want to give to that, right? And, um, and so, again, we just want to thank you guys for uh, allowing us to be here to, to speak into you guys this week, to encourage you. That is, uh, we just spoke with our students a few minutes ago. That's our job this week is to encourage one another and encourage you. So any way that we can do that, we can pray for you. Um, just let us know. And uh, that's exactly what we want to do. And so, um, again, thank you for hosting us. Um, Ada First Baptist, Michael, we love you. We love this church. 
Uh, we love the things that you guys are doing through this church. And so, again, thank you so much for having us here. And uh, we just hope that we can be a blessing to you guys this week. Well, that right there was worth coming to church for. Uh, in that window of time, almost 200 professions of faith and First Ada has baptized 68 young people. And uh, that's, that's phenomenal. I, I want you to hear some words from a guy named Sam. Sam was a Jesus freak in Los Angeles. He was a drug addict, lived on the streets, but he got saved. This is what Sam said. Since I've been saved... I've become the proud owner of my very own Bible. For those of us at Levi's and Lost and Found, that's a good word for you. Since I've been saved, I'm the owner of my very own Bible. Man, this book is something with its walking on water, changing water into wine, crippled people dancing around, prostitutes converted, graves popping open, lepers with skin like babies, half a million hippies wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, making it without welfare checks or Goodwill stores. <laughs> By the way, Kyle, my hair was four inches longer than yours when I got saved. My mom didn't like it, but she liked me getting saved enough she let me go with it. So, Vance Havner said, I love to meet a Christian before they meet too many church people. It's like the woman that walked up to me after I got saved and I was crying and I was just full of what God had done for me. And she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, don't worry, son, you'll get over it. And even at that point, I knew, I pray to God, I don't become like you, lady. I don't want to get over what Jesus did for me. I want my last breath to be rejoicing in what Jesus did for me. I don't want to get over it. And too many people in too many churches have gotten over what Jesus did for them. In this series, we're going to talk about the Jesus generation. Not just the Jesus generation of the 1960s and 70s, but we're going to go back to the first one. You know, those are first of everything. And those disciples were the first Jesus generation. Jesus came on the scene and started a revolution unlike any other. Now, the world is filled with stories of revolution, but there's never been a revolution like the revolution of Jesus showing up in a traditional, staid, dead religious culture of hardcore Judaism filled with legalism and saying, I've come to be a game changer. I've come to be a life changer. Now, here's the environment in which it happened. Rome was in power. They ruled with an iron fist. There was unrest. There was distrust. There was anger. The Jews were oppressed the religious leaders were totally out of touch with the common people, and idolatry was prevalent. Now come to the 20th century when I came to Christ. In the 20th century, our land was filled with political unrest, rioting, dead religion, drugs, promiscuous sex, segregation, street marches, and a very unpopular war. 
It is in those kind of times that God shows up and does his greatest work because it's when people become desperate for God to do something that they know needs to be done that they cry out to him. Who would have thought that when God decided to make his move, he would show up on the hillsides of a forgotten part of the world called Galilee? Who would have thought when God showed up in America that he would bypass the churches and the cathedrals and the religious institutions and the seminaries and go find a bunch of hippies and people living in communes and sleeping in parks and doing drugs and sit down in their midst and do a life-changing work. God always operates out of the way you think he's going to operate so that you don't get to take credit for it. Matthew chapter 4 in verse 18. Let's just look at the calling of four of the disciples. These were the first four guys in the first Jesus generation. Matthew 4, 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they said, after we get through with school, find our girlfriend, get married, get a car, get a house, raise our kids, then we'll follow you. Well, what does your translation say, Ken? Does it say immediately it doesn't say that? Oh, mine doesn't either. Uh, that's just the way some people like to read their Bible. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I want you to see that word immediately. It's important when you talk about a move of God. When God calls, he calls for immediate. He calls for response. They got up and left. They gave up a good career. They were fishermen. They made a good living in that culture at that time. James and John left the family business. Neither one of these two guys, brothers, these four, could have ever imagined what was about to happen because of one thing, immediately. They could have never imagined when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, they could have never imagined that before they died, the gospel would have penetrated the entire Roman Empire. They could have never imagined that a few short years after they were gone, that the gospel would have touched every tribe and tongue of the known world, nor could they imagine that today there would be people on mission around the world with unreached people groups touching lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't know there were undiscovered continents, but God knew the people on those continents needed Jesus, and it started with four guys, uneducated fishermen. I wonder who it'll start with here. So let's look at the choosing of his disciples. Uh, a group called Dove did a song uh, about the disciples, and, and the song title was The Dirty Dozen. These were the first dirty dozen. There were no scholars among them. Uh, there were no seminary professors among them. 
There, there were no theologians or orators among them. That didn't even happen until Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. These were common people prone to mistakes. Don't think that a move of God is not going to be messy. They made mistakes. There were lapses of faith. But here's what God does when he moves. When a Jesus generation starts to come together, he puts tax collectors who work for the government with zealots who want to overthrow the government, and he puts them together and says, y'all are going to share a room on mission trip. Well, I don't even like him. You love me, you'll like him. God puts people together we would never put together so that the putting together of those people says to a lost world, that's something that society can't do. Right, because only God can do it. At least four of them were fishermen. It's probable that by the time Jesus had assembled all 12 of his disciples that he was halfway through with his earthly ministry, which means he had a year and a half with the 12 to be with him everywhere he went, to hear everything he said, to go every place. He had about a year and a half to invest in them and to prepare them for a worldwide ministry. He selected 12. Mark 3 says he ordained 12 that they should be with him. Now, let, let me just say a word here about what it means to follow Christ and to be with him. And we're going to camp on that follow me. Okay, Here, here's what it means. <clears throat> the only place that you'll hear people talk about the word commitment is in the American church. The persecuted church knows nothing about the word commitment. Their word is surrender. See, surrender means you give up. You give up your rights, you give up your choices, you give up your priorities, and you lay yourself before Jesus and say, I'm yours. Commitment means I can sit and say, well, I'm more committed than him, and I'm more committed than her, and I'm more committed than I used to be. See, commitment comes in levels. Surrender comes once at a time, just one time. And we talk about commitment, and we brag about commitment. We have books in our bookstores about commitment. Jesus didn't talk about commitment. He talked about dying, dying to self. These four fishermen came, and, and they Follow Jesus. Jesus called them out and said, hey, you, follow me. And they got up and they left immediately and went and followed Jesus. Now, this was rare for the time because typically if you were going to be a disciple, you found the rabbi that you liked and you used that rabbi. You followed that rabbi. You wanted to become like that guy. You said, you know, I really like that guy. I like your favorite podcast or your favorite artist. You just become tied to that one person and that's really the only person you listen to Jesus turned the table and Jesus picked his disciples the disciples did not pick their rabbi their rabbi picked them God put his hand on these men and he called them out which made him different and by the way if a person said I'm going to follow somebody because they asked me to follow them, that was considered radical. And if you left your business to follow a rabbi, that was considered incredibly radical. God is always looking for people that are radical, 
People that fit in silos and boxes are rarely used to do great things for God. So here's Peter. He's a natural leader. Andrew had a heart for the lost. James was the first martyr. And John's heart was very tender. He wrote the Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. Here's why they became leaders. This is a, is a basic leadership principle. Here's why they became leaders. Because they were first great followers. You don't become a leader by being a leader. You become a leader first and foremost by being a good follower. They did what Jesus told them to do. Now look at the call to follow. Thirteen times in the gospel there's the phrase, follow me. It means to obey. It's an imperative command. When Jesus said, follow me, he said, follow me now. Follow me when it gets tough. Follow me when you get tired. Follow me when I'm gone and follow me to the end. I'm calling you to follow me. They left their nets, their boats, their tax collection tables and started following. Following is never until it seems hard. It's hard for American Christians to give God more than one hour a week. No wonder we're not seeing a move of God in our land. You know, if, if you ask somebody to do anything above what they're already doing, you're either unfair or you're unreasonable or you're a legalist. Jesus said, I want you to change everything you're doing and think of me first. Everything you do needs to go through my grid. It needs to go through my approval. It needs to go through my plan. Well, I don't want to do that. Then you ought to ask yourself a question today. Am I just a church member or am I following Jesus? Because Jesus does not take laggers who just follow when it's convenient, follow when it's easy. Following Christ means I don't set the conditions, I don't set the limits. It's an act of submission and surrender. Jesus said in Luke 9, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say to you? That would be a question that the average Baptist couldn't answer. Following means faithfulness. Now, I just want to give you a thought. Quitters were never called, and the called never quit. Quitters were never, hey, you know, I know somebody, they used to be a member of this church. I hadn't seen them in 20 years. You got every right to ask them if they're saved. Jesus said, you follow me, you follow me all the way. I'm going to a cross. If you can't follow me to the cross, don't waste my time. And by the way, don't waste the time of the real body of Christ because you give the real body of Christ a bad name if convenience is your middle name. There's a constant call. We have more than they ever had, and we accomplish less than they ever accomplished. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Joe Stoll, in his book, said, Too often we have graffitied the face of Christ. His image becomes clouded by our prejudices and preferences. Apart from our activities on Sunday and our conformity to external codes of do's and don'ts, the world doesn't much notice any difference between us and the people who don't claim to be Christians. The world doesn't notice much difference between us 
and the people who don't claim to be Christians. You know why? Because we've interpreted religious moralism as Christianity, and they're nothing alike. Religious moralism is I'm doing good so that God will approve of me. Your righteousness is as filthy rags is what the Bible says. Christianity is I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't clean myself up. Only God can save me, fix me, and clean me up and get me right with him. So a question, are you a follower? Are you a follower? Are you just staring at a distance and do you like the show and like the music and like the feel, but are you really following? Because following implies intimacy and growing and reflecting the character of Christ. Let me give you three or four statements here. Following is a passionate pursuit of Christ. It is a passionate pursuit of Christ. When I got saved, I knew immediately the difference between being a church kid raised in the church and having religion and passionately pursuing Christ. Secondly, following is surrender. It's surrender. Surrender means hands up. Hands up. I give up. I quit. I'm not, I'm not trying to do it my way anymore. Following is dying to self. It's dying to self. First question is not what do I want. First question is, Jesus, what do you want? Following is the starting point and the termination point. It's a starting point. They left their boats. Immediately, they got up and they left their boat, and it's the termination point. All but John of those 12 disciples, Judas betrayed him, but all but John of the rest of them died a martyr's death. John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos for decades, away from his friends, away from his family. So following is the starting point and the termination point, but it could also add to that it's how you evaluate everything in between the starting point and the termination point. Follow me, no small print. Whoever, whenever, wherever, whatever he asks you to do, follow me. Not rules, not feelings, not philosophy. He's calling for authentic Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Follow me. Come after me. You see, these first century Jesus generation people didn't have anything that we have. They didn't have a podcast. They didn't know what Disciple Now was. They didn't know what a camp or a retreat were. They didn't have Christian music. I mean, I think about it. Every time they showed up at the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue didn't recognize that God was in the synagogue and they missed him. So when Jesus said, you know, we ought, to, we ought to go to the synagogue like we're supposed to do. So they'd go to the synagogue and they're sitting there listening to sermons from somebody who doesn't even know God's in the room. And they're singing songs about hoping something to happen and Jesus is on the front row going, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Hey, knucklehead, it's me. 
the one that you could not see, you're looking at him. I mean, they were surrounded by religious people, and this is, this is what religious people do. The Pharisees are no different. They still exist today. Relig this is what religious people do. Don't do that. Don't do, don't do that. Don't dress like that. Don't do that. Don't, don't look like that. Don't sit like that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And when you look at them, you're looking at them and saying, God, don't let me be like them. Because they're miserable. What they're trying to do is invite you to being a disciple of misery. You see, folks, if lost people have to clean up before they come to church, then we're not a church. We're a religious social club. If they got to look the way you think they ought to look and dress the way you think they ought to act and dress and act the way you think, hey, they're lost, okay? They're not going to know how to be any different until Jesus gets a hold of them. So cut them some slack and get off your high horse. I would rather fill this church with people that haven't got it all figured out and want to know what it means to fall in love with Jesus than folks that are obsessed with where their quarterly is. We don't need any more quarterlies. We need a good dose of Jesus Christ. You can survive without a quarterly, but you can't survive without Jesus. You can survive without your open windows, but you cannot survive without time with God. We need to go back to this intimacy. They had none of this. They had to walk everywhere they went. They didn't have cell phones. They couldn't text and say, I'm in Nazareth. I'll be there in two and a half days. <laughs> but they loved their enemies. They loved one another. They sacrificed for others. They put Jesus first. And that's what I bought into when I got saved. Because I grew up in a dead church. I mean, it was so dead, we were given the funeral home a run for their money. I mean, it, it should have been called the dead in Christ church. Except we were, weren't in Christ, we were just dead. Deacons stood outside, offered burnt offerings between Sunday school and church. <laughs> Our deacons were not men full of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. They were just full of something, but it wasn't Jesus. But the Jesus movement hit our church, and it radically changed my life. I mean, it did a cartwheel on my life. During that time, because of Roger Breland and Truth, I got introduced to some music from the West Coast. Everything moved from the West Coast with the Jesus movement. Started on the beaches in California, started in San Francisco, and in uh, Haight-Ashbury and in Los Angeles, and it began to move across the country. But uh, Roger came with truth six times my, in 1972, and, and he introduced us to the music of Andre Crouch. Andre Crouch was a game changer in gospel music. Gospel music was a lot like southern gospel music. It was all kind of the same until Andre showed up. God found a young man that he could do something with that nobody could figure out what to do with him. The song that we opened with, Soon and Very Soon, Andre Crouch sang. He wrote that song. 
the song Jesus is the Answer was an Andre Crouch song. But I was, I was getting ready for this series, and, and I am more excited about this series than any series I've preached in however long I can remember. Because we're going to look at what God did in the first century, and we're going to look at what God did in the 20th century. And my premise for this series and my hope for this series is with our children and with our young people that God raises up another Jesus generation that when they're in their 60s, they can't get over what God did to them when they were young. They can't walk away from it, and they don't become like church people. They just become Jesus people who love the church and don't let the church become a religious institution. Let me ask you something. Is it possible that any of us have forgotten what it means to just love Jesus with abandon? We've become churched and in the process of becoming church, we've become less like Christ. Christ stopped and talked to people nobody else would talk to. Christ went places that acceptable people don't go. Because he was more concerned about the lost people than he was concerned about what people thought about him. And if we're going to have another Jesus generation, let me remind you what Alvin Reed said. Alvin Reed said, most of us are too old to start a revival, but we're not too old to kill one. As a guy who's 64 years of age, I'm going to tell you, I've seen what it can do in my generation, and I would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody at any time, anywhere, that tried to stop a move of God like the one I saw when I was a teenager. If you want me to get in your face, <laughs> you tell a teenager to calm down. They're too excited about Jesus. And you and I are going to have a come to Jesus meeting. And your visitation will be at 2 and your service will be at 3.30. <laughs> now Why? Because I've watched too many churches kill what God tried to start. We get afraid of it because we can't control it. And somebody will say, well, there's going to be excess. Yes, there is. We got excess at the extreme of deadness, and you're going to have to figure out excess at the extreme of life. But the choice is not to just not let there be life. My youth minister took a chance. He started exposing us to all of this. One Tuesday night, Calvary Baptist Church in Pascagoula, Mississippi, Vance Havner preached youth night at 72 years of age. He did youth night. But it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody just preach the word and not apologize for it. My, my pastor, he thought Reader's Digest was offensive, and so he was just... But Vance Havner preached the word, and I liked it because I at least knew what I was asked to do. And he talked to us about following Jesus. And that night he said, and many of you have heard me tell this story, that night he said, this is just for the teenagers, he said, 
If you want to follow Jesus tonight, then I want you to come down front. I want you to stand at the front, and I want you to turn around and face this congregation, and I want you to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. There were probably 70 or 80 young people in that room that night. Six of us went down. We didn't get to sing together. We sang solos. And I'll never forget what Havner said. He said, I'm not interested in your voice. I want to hear your heart. Jesus is calling somebody in this room to follow him today. Somebody in this room that's lost and doesn't know Christ. Maybe you're a church member. Maybe you've been baptized. That's not going to get you into heaven. He's calling someone in this room to follow him. And the response in the Gospels is always the same. Immediately, they followed him. They got up. It means that when we stand in just a moment and Mark begins to sing, you need to step out and come immediately. If you want to follow Christ, you already know what you need to do. You need to immediately get up and follow Jesus, to ask him to save you and to change your life immediately. Don't hide behind church membership. Don't hide behind attendance. Don't hide behind how many Bibles you've got don't, if, or if it's your first time here. What saves you is a personal surrender to Jesus Christ. To embrace him as the only hope you have of salvation and of heaven. And I'll give you one more line from Andre Crouch. He wrote a song and it said this, If heaven was never promised to me, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he came and brought me the light. Follow him.